0: Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams and today I'm joined by the phenomenal Josh Lewenberg of TSN. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time, Josh. I really appreciate it. I I know it's a busy world uh, and busy time in Raptors land. So uh, how are you? How is uh, the season treating you?
1: things are good. I mean, I can't believe we're already, what, like 16 games in? Yeah, it's it's flying by. It still kind of feels like th- there's a lot of newness here, obviously, because of the new coaching staff and, and the new system. Uh, so maybe in that sense, it seems like it, it's still the start of the season when in reality, we're we're 15, 16 games in, but it, it's flying by as these seasons tend to do.
0: I, I want to just kind of backtrack a little bit to your career. And, and I know you, you know, you're you didn't automatically think about going into to sports journalism. Just walk us through maybe your love of basketball and maybe how you, you started in the industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, growing up, I w- I've i been a basketball fan for a long time, I guess, like dating back to 95 and the Raptors. Shout out Alex Wong and, and his <laughs> and his new book, um, because that's that's sort of my origin story as well. Very, very similar to the Raptor or similar timeline to the Raptors origin story where I wasn't really even a sports fan at the time, but my mm-hmm. dad um, ha- has always really been into basketball. He introduced me to the game. And then when the Raptors got a team, when Toronto got a team, we would go to a lot of games and, and that kind of turned me into a basketball fan and a sports fan. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not the the tallest of, of guys, so it, it didn't take mm-hmm. too long for me to realize like a future in the NBA is probably not in the cards here. So, yeah, I mean, journalism, broadcasting had been my goal since I was pretty young, but I would say like I never really knew how to go about pursuing it. So Mm. in what feels like another lifetime now, I was doing a lot of like retail jobs. I was working in a bank um, in my teens and early 20s. And I I sort of did things in an unorthodox order, I would say, where a lot of people will will go to school for journalism and then do the internship. I actually started with an internship at the score for Tim McAuliffe and was there for about a half a year, I think, and and really liked it. And it was it was really eye-opening just in terms of like learning the business and seeing what's required. And if if anything, like it was I wanted to I wanted to pursue it, but it was tough to to you're kind of watching there right yeah. like I, I didn't have many reps or hands-on experience so that's when i went back to school i did a year at a uh, centennial college for sports journalism and then uh, went to intern at tsn radio where i mean i've been at tsn ever since it's been 13 years now since 2011
0: yeah, no, and I know you have a kind of cool story until how you got like the full-time Raptors gig at uh at TSN. You wanna just walk us that down how you started covering the Raptors?
1: Yeah, so I mean TSN 1050 was a a good place to start out at the time the the station had the radio station had just launched back in 2011 So there was a lot of opportunity there I was interning for a bit and then doing some freelance producing work and a little bit of reporting work And I mean at that stage in your career when you're just starting out The answer is yes to anything like you want to go cover this you want to go cover that (laughs) Yes, 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 so I was doing a lot of different things like CFL. Um, I was covering like the Marley's here and there. Um, I think there was like a, a NASCAR thing at one point, <laughs> kind of just a little bit of everything. And, and then that was actually the year of the NBA lockout. So I think I I'd started at ten fifty in April of 2011. And then the NBA season didn't start until December. And at the time they needed somebody to cover basketball. They, they didn't have anybody. Um, so they sent me to the only preseason game that year <laughs> It was against Boston. I still have the, my, my press pass cool. and I, I guess I didn't screw things up too badly. So they're like, all right, go to the first regular season game and then go to game two, go to game three, go to game four. And it, it just sort of, um, just sort of stuck from there. Um, yeah. so here I was kind of doing a little bit more. I was freelance, um, just with, with, home games to start and then started going to practices in year two and then traveling full-time in year three, started out just doing radio, then doing a little bit of writing then doing TV. So yeah, it's been, it's been a, a quick 13 years, I would say. It doesn't feel okay. like it's a decade.
0: And, and, and it's, with-
1: I timing mean, with obviously the growth of basketball in the country and, and the rise of the Raptors too, because my first couple of years, I, I started my my first year was Dwayne Casey's first year. And there were a huh. couple of yeah. seasons there, but like it was just kind of perfect timing that as I was kind of getting more experience and getting more comfortable and getting my my groove in the job is when the Raptors turned things around and, and had their ultimately most successful era in franchise history, culminating in a championship. So it's it's been it's been a lot of fun.
0: And I know you said you've kind of through your 13 years now at TSN, you've kind of done everything, as you mentioned, radio, writing, obviously TV. What do you think uh, was maybe one of the bigger challenges covering basketball for you um, from all the different kind of perspectives or different kinds of, um, I guess, forums of, of covering the team?
1: Um, I mean, they're, they're all challenging in their own way, right? Like, I think. When I first got into it, when I went to school um, at Centennial, the my my initial goal was TV. And obviously starting out in the industry, starting out anywhere in the industry, especially in Toronto in this market is very, very tough. But, but starting out in TV it is especially tough. So it just sort of just happened that, as I said, like I was doing a lot of podcasting when I was mm. in school. And that really got me into radio, which eventually led me me to TSN radio. And and TV was just something that came up, like, eventually, right? Like, with experience, with time at TSN, um, eventually I got that opportunity. But, I I, I mean, TV is tough. Like, it's a lot tougher, I think, than maybe I would have thought initially. And even from doing all these other things, like radio and writing, if anything, like, when you're on radio, you've got whatever Mm. it is. 16 minutes or even podcasting a form like this you've got a lot of time to talk and then when in writing and this is kind of why i like writing is you have however many however many words to to really flesh out a a story and and provide context and all of that with with tv you've got to be super concise you have 30 Mm -hmm. 40 50 maybe a minute if you're lucky I feel like sometimes I've got the trap door under me. And if I go over that, they've got the lever. And the ball. <laughs> um, so you, you've got to be concise and you, you've got to find a way to really summarize what, what you're talking about. Often without, without the context that you need to really like get into something, you've got to find a way to kind of condense it.
0: Yeah. And what's funny is I remember showing up to training camp this summer and I saw you outside with the truck uh, doing your, your TV hits and um and preparing and, and and everything but what what do you think are you, you alluded to how difficult it is to make it condense but maybe go 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 a bit deeper and maybe dive into the process of tv not just obviously the the 50 seconds that's on the air but what you do behind the scenes to make a good tv hit
1: the toughest thing i think like once you do okay you're you're, you're condensing everything you you've got what you want to say but then to deliver it in a way that's like natural is really, really difficult, especially in those first few. I mean, for me, it was years. Like it really does, there is there is a learning curve there where I'm so used to kind of being myself in podcast form or on radio. Um, but then you get in front of a camera and all of that just takes some like relearning almost. Um, and, and especially at first too, is like they really want you to like write out your your scripts. Like actually physically write stuff out, uh, which is helpful early on because you want to have an. I mean, obviously they want to have an idea of what you're going to say, but you want to have an idea of what you're going to say because once those lights turn on, whatever you've kind of gone through in your head, oftentimes you're you're like
0: all over in, the pl- yeah,
1: over the place. Um. So, but the problem with writing out those scripts is like you're so robotic. You're reading it. It almost mm-hmm. looks teleprompter when in reality you're just reading stuff through your head so that I think for me was the biggest learning curve is like and eventually you with with more experience like I I don't write scripts anymore I do go into it with an idea again of kind of like where I want to go and the big points that I want to hit but I think for me like that's what's really important is just finding a way to to be yourself to show some personality to be conversational um without kind of being too robotic on air, if that makes mm-hmm.
0: sense. No, no, totally. And, and you're very uh, effortless in, in the way you deliver uh, TV hits. And I remember during uh, the 2019, <laughs> I remember during the 2019 championship, just watching you the whole whole way. What was that like for you to cover the team that uh, obviously won the championship? And, you know, be, I guess I, I, I talked to some other reporters and they said they didn't like that it was so long. It felt like uh, two seasons instead of one season.
1: Yeah, I um, I don't know how like the Warriors beat writers do it every year, where they're going deep into the into the playoffs, into the finals every season. Because it really did, I it it seemed like a long run. Um, and by the end of it, yeah, you're just like you're you're so tired. There's a lot of travel going on and a lot of games. But I always say like, if you're gonna go that deep into the playoffs, you want to make it worth it, right? Like you don't want to go. I it would be maddening covering a team like the Sixers where you're you're still going deep like it's not like their seasons are ending early but then for what you're losing in the second round like if, if not to take a shot at the 76ers yeah. but well you um, did <laughs> um but if you're if you're gonna go that deep into the playoffs make sure that it's worth it and the great thing about that year is like we never really knew like we, we didn't know what the ceiling was for that team really. Like it, it felt like a few times, obviously against Philadelphia and then definitely Oh two down Oh two to Milwaukee. It, it felt like things were probably coming to an end. And then what happens with Kawhi from there. So just like how things developed in some ways, unexpectedly um, ultimately leading to the championship. And that was, it, it was so surreal. Like as a fan, a longtime fan going up, of of the game not only just like being around the raptors for a really long time but also just like being a basketball fan in canada and it's funny like because the last time that we did this last time we spoke was the, the canada basketball run during the summer and just like seeing how far the game has come and what it was like being a fan of basketball when i was a kid where like you really you really were like you were the the minority in this country like you you just like anywhere you went and you just hockey hockey this hockey that lease yeah. this that um so to to see how far basketball has come and then to ultimately be there for that moment in Oakland um yeah it, it, it was surreal I've never experienced anything like that
0: was there some like you you talked about being in Oakland was there one memory that sticks out like I, I'm sure Everyone's thinking Kawaii shot, Kawhi shot, but maybe just something specific to you that you'll always remember about that team in that run. Well,
1: it's funny. You were talking about how long things were and initially what I thought you were, you were going to before talking about like the, how long the playoff run was. I thought you were going to say how long those final like few seconds were. Oh, right?
0: yes, yes. I remember
1: that. I remember thinking, like, we knew they had won the championship or they were about to win the championship, but then there were all those fouls and the free throws and that kind of dragged out a little bit. But if anything, like, I remember just sitting there in my seat and, like, using that time to kind of process what was happening because it it really did take something like, am I dreaming this? Is this real? And then going to the locker room after the game. Like, I'll always remember that. I'll remember not being prepared because getting in, (laughs) it was a massive line to get into the Raptors locker room, the visiting (laughs) locker The last time anybody ever used that visiting locker room at Oracle Arena um, in in Oakland. And everyone in this massive line is decked out in their, like, raincoats and and their, their, like, garbage bags and stuff. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I knew that this was a, a possibility. Obviously, this is an elimination game. The Raptors could win the championship tonight. I was not prepared for that. I was wearing a a very nice, very expensive suit, <laughs> which is no longer in the rotation. That has uh, I was suits. gonna
0: ask that uh you know it's 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 up for memorabilia, you know, like it's it's a game worn game six uh suit right there from Josh Lumenberg.
1: Uh champagne out of that out of that uh suit or the shoes for that matter.
0: Oh my God. Wow. You, that must have been a wet walk home uh, for sure. Um, I just want to now transition as best I can to to the team that you cover day in and day out. And you've, you've talked about how it's kind of been a up and down season. How, like, what have you made of the season so far? It doesn't make sense that they're close to 500. Uh, are they underperforming? Are they overachieving? What do you make of their season so far?
1: I mean, my expectation going in was a little bit higher than I, I think what what most people were expecting, certainly what Vegas was expecting. Like I was always kind of surprised by the 36 and a half over under for the win total. My expectation was like 40, 41 wins, 500 team. And that's basically what we've seen so far. Now, I think like maybe how they've gotten there has been a little bit of a surprise, but I I think at the end of the day, like an average team, a 500 team, they're going to have peaks and valleys. They're not going to play averagely every game. They're Mm going to have, they look great. And they're going to have games where they don't. And I think that was the case for the most part last season, until things ultimately fell apart towards the end of the year is they had those moments. And that was what was so frustrating, especially on the defensive end where you're like, this team is capable of being much, much more than they were. Um, But for the average teams, I mean, historically, I think the biggest issue with average teams is they're not able to sustain those really positive, really encouraging moments that they have. So the jury is still out in terms of whether or not this team is going to be able to do that. I think there is definitely cause for encouragement, especially during those positive moments where you're seeing the Darko system really come through and guys are really buying in. Um, The fact that they're moving the ball more this year and the offense is looking a little bit more fluid, especially recently because they did get off to a tough start offensively. But the offense has looked better recently. The defense, while also not consistent, has looked better. So, yeah, I mean, the hope, I think, internally is that once guys kind of really figure out the system and and Darko kind of has a better idea of what the rotation is going to look like, that maybe those encouraging moments become more frequent but yeah i mean i'm a bit skeptical for a few reasons i I would just say the difference for me anyway in covering this team from Mm -hmm. last year is that the vibes vibes these guys seem to like each other now for for now i mean we'll see what happens if and when there's a, a a losing streak if they go on the road and have a tough trip or or whatever it is but they all seem to really like playing for Darko they bought into the system guys seem to like each other and I mean I, I think theoretically that should make a difference right like chemistry is a big deal on and off the court and last year it was a bit of a disaster for whatever reason and probably multiple reasons. Um, so I, I think they've got that now it's just a matter of finding some semblance of consistency in order to, reach whatever this team's ceiling is. I'm still not sure what it is, but um, I think it's better than a 500 team if they can somehow figure it out.
0: How how encouraging is just the play of Scotty Barnes? Like he's been so effective so far. And obviously that might change the outlook of this team in terms of their, their ceiling. And can they be a 45 win team if he continues to play this way and they iron out some things. But why do you think he's been so much more effective this year than he was last year where he kind of seemed to maybe regress a little bit
1: i just think I, I mean i wasn't surprised by what happened last year i think and historically you see that a lot with really uh good young players who get off to a really quick start in the nba is like there, there's always going to be that kind of learning curve and it's going to hit eventually and, and i think the sophomore slump is something that you see pretty regularly um I just think like things went so smoothly for him in year one. He could do no wrong, and, and probably a lot of the coverage, not just locally here in Toronto, but around the league, reflected that as well. So and maybe that got to his head a little bit going into his second year, and maybe he, he got a little bit too confident um, and, and needed to be humbled a little bit. And I think that's what happened last year. And honestly, I think it was a really good thing for him. I think it was probably the best thing mm. for him. And he learned a thing or two from last season and the great players do, right? Like the great players will have those moments, but they'll learn from those moments. And I I think more than anything else, just from listening to him, especially going into the season, the thing that he took away from it more than anything else was preparation, like what he needs to do going into a season in order to be prepared and in order to be great. And one of the things that he talked a lot about was conditioning. It was funny. Last year, one of the things that was so frustrating, kind of not unlike the team itself, is he would have those moments. He would have encouraging moments. A lot of them would come late in the game. A lot of them would come in the fourth quarter. But it's like, well, why isn't he doing it over the course of a full game? And as it turns out, it sounds like the reason why he wasn't doing it is because he physically wasn't able to do it. And it's tough. I mean, especially for a guy that plays the way that he does, as hard as he does. Um, So he he talked about really working on his conditioning level. over the offseason, taking care of his body differently, getting stronger, and really just making sure that he's able to take over games and, and put his stamp on games earlier and sustain them longer, being able to do it over the course of 48 minutes, over the course of an 82 game season. And I, I mean, I agree with you. Like, and I, I said going to the season, he was their biggest swing factor. They go as as he goes, not mm-hmm. just this but probably beyond as well. Right. Um, So yeah, for, for him to, if he's able to now sustain this for, for the season, if he's able to become this all-star player that I think a lot of people expected him to be and that he's looked like for most of this first part of the season, that really changes the trajectory of this team. This is a pretty similar roster to the one from last year, minus of course, Fred Van Bleet. And, there aren't that many young players on the team. Like it's the seventh oldest team, I think, in the league. And yeah, a lot of that is is weighed up because of the guys at the end of the bench. Yeah. But that's right? Like a lot of the time, the guys at the end of the bench are like, that, that's where you want young players, players that have a high ceiling that can be your like development pieces that maybe one day can grow into rotation players and the Raptors. And there's, there's an argument for this as well, obviously. And there's a reason why they did it, but the Raptors have decided instead to use those spots on the vets, Thad and, and Garrett Temple. Uh, but what that means basically is like, if this team is going to take the next step without making any major additions over the off season, we'll see if they do it this season. But for now it's gotta be through internal growth. And if it's going to be internal growth, it's gotta be Scotty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, on to that, obviously, you kind of alluded to the fact that Siakam and OG and even Gary Trent, but mostly those two uh, all are free agents. Um, The lineups with Siakam, OG and Scotty have been really, really good this year. But what do you think happens there just with those two two players and specifically in OG and Siakam? How likely are they going to stay with this team? Do you have any intel? Just what do you think happens there?
1: I mean, I, if you're the Raptors, like that's what you're spending these next few months doing is trying to read those two. And I, I, first of all, you have to you have to try to read the players in the market. You have to decide, like, how feasible is this? How feasible is it to bring them back? Um, second of all, you have to decide whether or not you even want to do it. Right. Because there's there's a challenge there in and of itself is like if you're bringing all of these guys back, you're resigning Siakam to what it's going to cost to resign Siakam. OG Ananobi. Then, yeah, I mean, a Gary Trent Jr., Precious Achua, um, at some point in the near future, they're going to have to figure out, well, not figure out, they're obviously going to extend Scottie, um, but there's going to be a significant cost to doing that as well. Yeah. So bringing all these guys back, you, you're probably going deep into the luxury tax for a team that, as we've talked about right now, is, is average. Um, so you've got to decide whether or not you want to do it. And then if you do, how realistic is it given what you know about those players and what they're looking for, what they're going to be looking for, and and reading the market as well? Cause this is something that the Raptors did not do well going into Fred Van Vliet's free agency. They misread the player. They misread the market because they didn't think there was a team that was going to be out there that's going to drastically outbid them to the point where they just say, okay, well we just can't yeah. justify spending that kind of money on this player. And if anything, like I mean, Philadelphia looks like they're going to have a, a boatload of cap space unless they they
0: something happens. Yeah,
1: unless something happens here. So, like, th- there are going to be some teams out there that are going to be interesting. And free agency, and Masai has alluded to this a few times. Free agency isn't what it used to be. It's very rare now that star players end up going to free agency. Most of them just take the extension when they when they can, and then eventually, if they want out, they they ask. Oh. What they ask. Um, so. If guys like Siakam and Ananobi are out there on the open market, and, and I mean, Siakam is still extension eligible, and there's a chance that that could be offered and and maybe signed at some point. But for Ananobi, like, he will almost certainly be a free I'll get rid of the word almost. He will certainly be a free agent over the summer. Like, there, there are teams that are going to have that money and there are teams that are going to have that motivation to go out there and throw a lot of it out there. So, yeah, I mean, they've got to figure out how realistic it is. And if it's not, that's when these decisions have to be made and the clock is ticking. I know the Raptors' front office, they don't like to look at it in that terms, as patient as they are. But the clock is very much ticking Ticking here. I know their their goal at some point is to go out and to – push their chips in and 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 go get the the player that's going to take them to the next level. But first of all, they don't have as many chips as they once did. It was a lot easier to push your chips in during the, the championship year because they had so many assets that they don't have right now. And then second of all, you, you can't use those assets. One, when they become free agents and two, if they leave you in free agency, like then there goes those yeah. assets you already lost quite a few of them. So yeah, they, they've got to figure this out and they have until the February trade deadline to do it.
0: Yeah. And with that, like how would you assess Bobby and Masai's kind of how they've gone about it? Because it does seem as though you know, recently that a bit of too much patience might be in action and, and and poor action. Um, How would you assess the tenure of Bobby Masai, maybe the last two or three years, where they've traded picks, they don't have the same plethora of assets, and, and the team just hasn't been as successful as they were before the championship and the year after the championship?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough few years, just in terms of I talked about that developmental pipeline and the fact that, like, there hasn't been those those success stories that this team really built that championship team on right like the Fred Van vleets and Pascal C. Atkins, but even like Chris Boucher, like when was the last time that they found and, and and you have to, especially if you're not drafting up at the top. I mean, they did a great job in, in finding Scotty Barnes and I know that was like a controversial pick at the time over Jalen Suggs. They made the right pick there, but at the same time like when you're in the lottery when you're in the top five it's a lot easier than when you're drafting from the bottom um, or or trying to find guys in free agency. That's what they've struggled to do over the last few years. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of like the asset management, you could almost justify like, I mean, obviously they, they lost Kawhi. They lost Danny Green. You can That's- understand. You can justify that. Marcus Ole and Sergi Baca, a little bit tougher to understand, but there was a method to the madness. They were trying to maximize cap space for...
0: Giannis.
1: (laughs) That may or may not have become available, um, Giannis. Um, You can understand that to some degree. But yeah, I mean, Fred VanVleet is the one that was kind of tough to come to terms with especially because there was an opportunity, at least at the trade deadline, to move them. What they could have gotten back, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it would have been much, but it's tough in hindsight looking back and being like, well, anything would have been better than nothing. And now you're in a similar boat with Siakam and Annobi, where in this league, like, and this is why I said earlier, the clock is ticking, the closer you get to a player's free agency, the less control on, on that player's contract, yeah, you're trading their bird rights, but there are teams that are understandably going to be reluctant when they're like, well, this guy, this could be a rental. This guy could leave in a few months. Or on the other side of it, and this is something I know that affected the Fred VanVleet trade market. And it definitely affected the Kyle Lowry trade market back at the deadline when they were looking to shop him. Is there are teams that are thinking like, well, we, we're going to have cap space. We could sign this guy and free agency in a few months from now. Why would we give up assets now in, in order to do that? So it, it's tough when you're getting this close to free agency to go out there and find value. And that that's then leads me to the next dilemma is that the Raptors value these guys very highly, maybe too highly. I mean, they should value them highly. They're good players, but the problem is, and I don't know if this is a problem. It's become a bit of a problem is that because these are guys that these are Messiah's guys, these are guys that he drafted, that he helped develop. He's watched them grow. Um, it's I think, been difficult for him to move on in the same way that it's different than than coming in and trading Rudy Gay, yeah, in his season here, right? Like so I, I think that the asking price has been really, really high. and and now you've come to a point where, Again, if the answer to either of those questions that we asked earlier, is it feasible to re-sign them and do you even want to re-sign them? If either of those answers is no, you need to move them and you're probably going to have to move them for less than they're worth and less than you may have gotten a year from now or a year ago or two years ago. Um, I think that's been tough for them to come to terms with.
0: Yeah, they're a bit uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. Before I let you go, Josh, um, just a lot of fans are – kind of scrambling to see and and to feel and they're feeling maybe miserable might be too strong a word but about the Grady Dick situation and just his rookie start. Um what have you made of his play so far this year and um and just him going to the G League not playing very well there just what do you make of of him so far?
1: Yeah, we're we're a long way away from hitting the panic button or or using the the B word the bust word. Um, <laughs> guy that's 15 games or or so into his NBA career. I I mean, he was 19 years old. He's 20 years old now, very young. I I think like this was always the expectation of anything. Like what was surprising is how quickly he was playing like serious rotation minutes I mean, I think a lo- uh, people were a little bit surprised in training camp when it sounded like he wasn't going to be in the rotation. But eventually, like that became the the reality is like we went into the season thinking, all right, well, we're probably not going to see very much of Grady Dick. And probably just because of the the glaring need for shooting on this roster, he kind of forced his way into the rotation and and he was getting big minutes and he wasn't shooting the ball well. And I think like, especially as a young player, really for any shooter, but especially for a young player that gets in your head a little bit. We were talking about this off air before with, with shooters is so much of it is like there. there's the actual mechanics of it all. But there, there's also the mental side of it, and making sure that you're consistent with your mechanics and, and your and your form. And when you're a young player and you're missing and you're in a slump like that, that kind of that takes over. And even for a guy like Grady, like, I I think he's more than just a shooter. I definitely think that that's, like, the goal is to get him to the point where even if he is in a shooting slump, he's still making an impact. But I think just because that's, like, such a big part of his game right now, it's maybe affecting other areas on both ends of the floor. So, I mean, I'm not worried. I like what the Raptors are doing in sending him to the G League, trying to get him some lower leverage – reps and minutes while he works this thing out and yeah not unlike scotty barnes who obviously like it was a different yeah. early or early career trajectory but at some point it's inevitable you're going to hit the bump in the road in this case he's hit it a little bit earlier than scotty did and now it's just a question of like what are you going to do with it what are you going to learn from it how quickly are you going to learn from it and we're going to find out a lot about the player eventually from what he does with this
0: well down yeah yeah yeah.
1: This season, this downtime.
0: Um, I'll ask one quick Canada basketball question because I that's how we kind of connected with you know when I was in Jakarta. Um, who is who would you take on your team if you had to? Who's the better uh Canadian men's basketball player in your mind? Steve Nash or Shea Gilgis Alexander?
1: In their primes or right now?
0: Uh <laughs> definitely not right now, uh, but in their primes for Canada.
1: Oh man, um, it, it depends. I mean, I think like Steve Nash in his prime on this team now would be really good if for no other reason than Steve Nash, like one of the greatest point guards of all time, is is was exceptional at at bringing out the best in other players. I mean, you look at all the players on the Suns that got paid yep. like during those the 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 prime years, seven of-
0: seconds or less Suns.
1: Yeah, But exactly like he he was making a major financial difference for a lot of guys back then. And unfortunately, like for Team Canada during the years that he was playing with them, there just wasn't as much talent around him as there there is around Shea on, on this team. So I would be interested to see like just a natural point guard as great as Steve was at, at getting other guys involved and, and bring out the best in them how good he would be with this team. Um can I have both? I can't have both?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, you can have both. You can we will uh, Canada needs both to to beat the US. That's that's what we need.
1: I Shea is great. Um and and will continue to get better, but let's not forget how great a two-time MVP um and one of the great point one of the greatest point guards of all time Steve Nash was. So I'll, I'll take Steve Nash in his prime.
0: I always think about Steve Nash playing in today's NBA and just raining down terror from three. Like it'd be like Steph with Trey Young almost. It'd be. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to give you the floor, Uh, Josh, thanks so much again for doing this. Anything you want to plug for for TSN and anything coming up that uh, people should keep their eyes and ears open for?
1: Something exciting coming out for next week. Something we've, we've been getting uh, a bit nostalgic here, talking about obviously Canada basketball and about, Old school Raptors basketball, those early years of what was the greatest success, the greatest um, era in Raptors history. Um, so I have something that's a little bit nostalgic coming out next week. Cool. Um, I, I don't want to give away too much now, but um, I know, like personally speaking, this is one of the um, one of the things that I've been looking forward to writing for a really long time. And as I'm kind of nearing the end of this this interview and writing process for this piece it's it's something that i like it is excited it's as excited as i've been about anything that i've worked on in a really long time so
0: well if josh stay- if josh Lewenberg's very excited about something i know i am so i'm i'm very much looking forward to to taking a look at whatever it is uh and uh thanks again for for doing this josh
1: anytime alex my pleasure
0: If you like this, please like, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks so much for listening to Behind the Play.